Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. We're back in the studio again, observing the rule of three podcast hosts. Let's meet the panel. Dining in from Birmingham, it's Minnie Rahman, Campaign and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Dorian. Um, Keir Starmer uh, sat down for an interview with famous Meghan Markle obsessive Piers Morgan. Um, <laughs> talked a lot about his sort of unusual childhood, the loss of his parents, um, not so much about politics or not so much that was very precise about politics. Do you think, apart from the fact that being in a room with Piers Morgan is never a good idea, do you think that this this sort of set-piece interview was a good idea for him at this stage? Yeah, I, I was really nervous when I first heard about it, but I, I do actually think it was a good thing for him to do because a lot of people watch Piers Morgan and a lot of people don't know very much about Keir Starmer. Um, you know, for whatever reason, he hasn't had the same kind of visibility as other political leaders and he does need to find a way to build a a public profile. He has actually done a few things like this before. So he did um, Desert Island Discs, I think it was last year. And that was a very similar vibe. He was quite emotional about his parents on that, especially his mum. And I think what I now want to see from him is that, okay, you know, that's your backstory. That's your human story. You've let the public know who you are. But how is he going to use that emotion to connect with people politically too? And for me, that really is about the story of his mum and dad, because that's so much about the NHS and healthcare. And so I think that's something that he could find his voice on. I'm just interested to see how that translates from a Piers Morgan interview. Mm. And, and there was also an idea floated recently, uh, I'm not sure how kind of firm it is, of a fly-on-the-wall documentary. Of course, uh, Jeremy Corbyn also did one for Vice. Is that a good idea, Seamus? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, again, it makes me really nervous, but I don't think it has to be a bad thing. I think the thing for me is there has to be a balance between the policy that's coming out of Labour and making Keir Starmer a kind of public personality or an interesting figure. And I think Labour could fall into the trap of essentially playing into this personality politics type game, which really wouldn't go well for them because one, that the personality that he's competing with is Boris Johnson. And two, you know, that was quite a valid criticism of, of Corbyn's leadership. So I think they have to focus on what message they want people to hear before they kind of just go ahead with these kind of like quite public stunts, essentially. Ian Dunt is editor-at-large at politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello. Last week saw the 50th anniversary of an act that's very dear to your heart, the Misuse of Drugs Act. Mm, great act. Um, after half a century of, of the British version of the war on drugs, how's it going? <laughs> I'm not... It's, it's not going great. Um, so if you look at the figures, which, whichever way you look at it, you know, more people use drugs, a lot more people use drugs than used to use drugs when the act was passed. More people die of drugs. 2018 was the highest number of drug deaths on records. Any any moment in time, about a third of the people in our prisons are there on, on charges related to drugs or directly drugs uh, or directly drug charges. So it has failed in any fucking way that you could possibly... Can, like define success for that act. If the success of it was to stop more people doing drugs, it has failed demonstrably over and over again. But I sort of feel, I mean, this week, I, I almost feel sort of tired of, and I'm guilty of this myself, of just doing this constant thing of saying that it fails. Because the thing is also, the important thing to mention is, it wouldn't be tolerable even if it did work. Because the state does not have the right to tell people what they put in their bodies. And I think a lot of drug reformers feel this way and go for the easier argument, which is ultimately that drug laws don't work and they don't. But it is also important to remember the fact that it would be intolerable, morally intolerable on its own terms for the state to be behaving in this way. And the fact that it's done it for half a century and continues to do it now is really quite dispiriting indeed. So are you like full legalisation now? Uh, well, I'd want it done very, very cautiously. I don't think like, you know, as a strategy, you want to start by opening up with let's legalise crack. OK, so that just doesn't make political sense to approach it. You obviously want to start with... How with would cannabis. that go down in the red room? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect not very well. So I think you start with cannabis, but we do have to have a conversation about what you do with things like cocaine, like heroin. I don't think that's about having the free market dictated. I think it's about doing it, you know, in a pharmaceutical environment with very boring, boring packaging and, in you know, giving clear instructions as to what is safe. I think it's about 
checking drugs when people go to festivals. So you do start with the softer targets. But I don't feel that with soft targets, we can lose sight of the fact that there is a moral agenda here, quite apart from the bad outcomes that we, you know, that you have to be pushing all the time for what is ultimately a more comprehensive form of drug reform than the one that we usually talk about at the moment. Uh, and in several US states, they've um, legalized marijuana. Um, why is why will the British sort of political class seem completely unwilling to budge on this stuff? You know, I think a lot of this is to do with um, what it is to have real local democracy. So, you know, in the US, you can have referendums at a state level. You can change the law at a state level. In the UK, you can't. So the reason they're now discussing it in the US at a federal level is because enough states have shown it can work. In the UK, you don't have that dynamism. You don't have that ability to experiment because you don't have the ability to change a law at a local level. So what we get is just a political class is just fucking frozen in ice. You look at, look at David Cameron, right? David Cameron, you know, spam faced twat that he was, was perfectly sensible on drug reform in 2002. 2002, he's on the Home Affairs Select Committee, right? Comes in and says, well, actually, we signed a report, says we need to have a conversation about regulation. Come, becomes Prime Minister, the same Home Affairs Select Committee, when he's there in 2012, says, well, actually, we should have a royal commission on. He says, no, no, the war on drugs works. The war on drugs works. When he leaves, opinion changes again. Same with Jackie Smith, over and over. Whoever the fuck they are, Labour, Tory, socialist, capitalist, whatever. When they get into power, they pretend, they close the curtains and they fucking pretend that the machine works and they don't give a shit about the thousands of lives that are mutilated, destroyed, killed, incarcerated and ruined because of this demonstrably failed policy. Oh, fuck that. Sorry, it's a bit full on for the beginning of the program, really, isn't it? But there we are. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Uh, we have some, a story that's firmly in your COVID wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> with a sort of fast I, evolving... I personally <laughs> am directing the pandemic. <laughs> is, is that a wheelhouse you enjoy, the, the COVID wheelhouse? <laughs> Big wheelhouse right now. Um, so this is fast evolving story. The original COVID outbreak might have come from a lab leak in Wuhan. After all, this is something that actually does appear in the book Failures of State. And we sort of spoke to the authors about that, I think, after the recording. It used to be quite a kind of derided theory. Um, now people are taking it seriously. What, how plausible is it? And I suppose, what are the implications if it turns out to be true? It's very plausible. I mean, the fact that the that Wuhan has an institute of virology that was doing work on bat coronaviruses, which it turns out, incidentally, was part probably part funded by the US government. So it's not all about China here. And it's even more complex <laughs> than it looks. It's plausible. I mean, it's, it's also it is a bit of a shock. I mean, you know, for for a year or so, I've been publishing articles saying that basically the pandemic is proof that we need to stop eating meat and uh, we need to stop cutting down rainforests. And while it is absolutely true that we we need to stop doing those things, um, that doesn't may not have been the reason the, the reason for the pandemic. It's a sign of how you can adapt almost any circumstance to try to to suit your political agenda. And I think that's unfortunately what happened. What also happened, of course, was that Trump believed it. And when Trump believes it, I mean it's understandable you're naturally sceptical about about it. In some ways, it's quite good. I think that it didn't come out at the beginning of the pandemic. That might sound a bit cynical, but I think perhaps the anti-China feeling might have been so strong that you could have seen quite a lot of potentially racist violence and attacks and unpleasantness. There was already a lot of anti-China feeling back last year, you may remember. And had this been in any way, you know, proven, I think there would have been even more of that. And certain actors would have seized on it and used it as an excuse to bash China. But it is important to find out what happened because, you know, uh, obviously, if we don't if we don't know how it started, then we can't stop the same thing happening again. Because there was also back then, I remember there was a more extreme version, like the lab leak theory that I remember seeing being pushed sort of by the American uh, right was that they were developing this sort of biological super weapon. And that was probably why I dis dismissed it, because there was like this kind of... Well, they were messing around Michael with... Michael Crichton version of yeah, the theory. Yeah, they were messing around with coronaviruses and they were potentially making them more infectious, which, you know, I'm sure there's good reason for that scientifically, but uh, it is it is a it is a dodgy thing to do. And there are lab leaks. You know, the last case of smallpox in the UK in the 70s was because there was a lab leak. Uh, it does happen because people work in lab leaks and then, you know, they go out when they stop working there. So, yeah, it is, it is plausible. I doubt we'll ever be 100% certain because the Chinese state is... Understandably so secretive about it, but um, it's it's completely plausible. 
Meanwhile, the government has just announced £1.4 billion for 100 million hours of post-pandemic catch-up tuition, which sounds really good uh, until you divide it by the number of children. Um, yeah. Outsourced to... Which Gavin Williamson can't, cannot do, apparently. <laughs> Um, I'm so fucking angry about this. I might have to. I might have to start doing an E and just swearing constantly about it. It's just like it's like fifty quid a child. I mean, that is how much you would routinely pay for tuition if you're trying to get your kid into a private school or a grammar school or whatever for one hour. And this is pure child for catching up with what is often more than six months missed schooling. It is just fucking risible. I mean, it's not peanuts. It's like grains of sand. It's like, I don't know how to express how <laughs> pathetic this is. But they've spent so much, you know, uh, the Treasury has spent so much on, you know, on furlough and, mm. you know, keeping keeping the country sort of going through the pandemic. Mm. Why, why it is now when it's trying to kind of allow uh, children to catch up with their education, the time to kind of tighten the belts? Because it's not the middle classes who are going to be worst affected. And it's always about the middle classes. I mean, they threw money at middle classes. They spent more than, you know, they've, by March, they had already spent $3.3 billion on the stamp duty waiver, which basically shoved the cost of, of, house, of houses up by 10% in the last year and was a bung to property owners. And that was completely unnecessary when people, you know, those people were mainly sitting at home keeping their jobs or on furlough anyway. They were not the people who needed that money, but they still did it. The people who need the kids who need this money are not the middle going to be in the middle classes because they'll be all right. You know, they'll they'll just pay for extra tuition themselves because that's what they do. And it's the people, it's the kids who didn't turn up for Zoom lessons. I mean, you know, I watched I watched my daughter on Zoom lessons when they started. There weren't any in the first lockdown. The third there were a third of the kids weren't even on the call. You know, they took an afternoon off one day to try to, to ring round those parents to try and get their kids to attend mm. the call. They weren't even on the call. Even if you consider a Zoom call, you know, an acceptable substitute for the, the what they were getting in the lesson, and a lot of them were just spending the time WhatsApping during the Zoom call and turning off the camera anyway, even if you think that, it's just risible to think that that is in any way an adequate way to enable kids to catch up with the vast amount they've lost because a lot of them did not do homeschooling. Homeschooling was a thing for the middle classes and the lucky and it was not a thing for the rest and it just it, it, it makes me so so angry. I can't believe uh, Gavin Williamson has blotted his record. <laughs> very very disappointing. Ros we have some good news and confirmation of your psychic powers. Uh, that the Education Recovery Commissioner, Sir Kevin Collins, the catch-up czar, has resigned over uh, this latest snafu. Excellent. That is good news. Um, albeit, I should say that there is not a great record in Boris Johnson's government of resignations actually leading to change. But let's hope this is a bit of a Marcus Rashford moment where it does bring about change. And let's hope what doesn't happen is that Johnson now inserts some pliable individual into that role who will do exactly what he tells them to. This week on the show, the immigration environment on the UK border gets ever more hostile, the UK border force wrongly detaining EU citizens on minor pretexts. Is it post-Brexit teething trouble or is the Home Office out of control? Plus, we'll be looking at the new Netflix documentary Nail Bomber Manhunt, which tells the story of far-right terrorism in 1999 and what it can teach us about rising right-wing extremism today. And in the extra bit, we'll be discussing a new study which shows that the better you think you are at spotting fake news, the more likely you are to fall for it. That's true, you don't have to look it up. (laughs) Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to sign up and get our gala extended edition every week without ads too. First up this week, reports are coming in all the time of EU citizens being mistreated by UK border officials, even if they have proof of settled status, correct visas and British passports on the way. Daniel Trilling recently published a Chilling Guardian long read called Cruel Paranoid Failing inside the Home Office. 27,000 out of the Home Office's 33,000 civil servants work in borders, immigration and citizenship, which Trilling describes winningly as part police state, part welfare state and part money-making scheme. Hmm. Are the latest errors proof of a dysfunctional system? Many... There's millions of EU visitors are now encountering um, the hostile environment for the first time, potentially. Even with international travel at an all-time low, many have been publicly humiliated and locked up. So a significant percentage of a fairly small number. One told The Guardian, I felt like I had landed in some enemy state. Uh, Is the problem here that the regulations and guidelines 
are, are, are sort of unworkable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this really comes down to the Home Office and the policies that it has and the way that it implements them. So, you know, the the hostile environment in its existence is a horrendous compilation of policies that are designed to stop people accessing support and is intended to force people out of the country or to stop them entering in the first place. It's also been proven to directly cause racial discrimination and it's what entrapped the Windrush generation. The Home Office's commitment to that shows that it has malicious intentions. You know, they've not backed down on that policy at all and they're just bringing more people into it. And then on top of that, I like to think of the Home Office as kind of, it's like a giant game of Jenga. So whenever there is a problem or a new issue to do with migration or a new policy direction, what tends to happen is just another layer of policy is added on top of already chaotic policy. Now that makes it incredibly difficult for ordinary people on the ground and even uh, caseworkers within the Home Office to understand what they are supposed to be doing or what documents they're supposed to check. And I think that is part of the reason why the Home Office has such a long history of being completely incompetent. Really, sadly, it's just likely to continue because there's no intention to get the Home Office in order. Many of these people are held in short-term detention facilities at airports and seaports, which have been deemed not fit for purpose by inspectors. What happens in these places? What are they like? Yeah, so they are they are essentially an extension of the detention estate. So every problem that you see in kind of bigger detention centres like Yarl's Wood is replicated to some extent in these short-term holding facilities. So they're places where people are held if they seem like they don't have the right to be in the UK and before someone is able to determine what to do with them. At airports, usually people are coming off flights. The ones at seaports, people have usually come through irregular means. They could be victims of trafficking or people who've come through as asylum seekers. Now, Border Force has oversight of these facilities. And what that means in practice is that they are extremely shady with no accountability. The inspector of prisons did a report into these sites. I think it was last year or in 2019. And they found that the Border Force couldn't even tell them how many of these sites actually existed or how long people stay there. So the people who are there, they don't have access to legal advice. They're handcuffed. That includes children and pregnant women. Staff have no training or assessment of what their needs are. And the accommodation itself is often really squalid and and not suitable for kind of any type of stay. Um, And I think really interesting is that the staff at those sites themselves, which is quite unique for kind of home office employees or civil servants, they have said that they feel forgotten and that there isn't any guidance or or best practice shared. So it's just quite astounding that they exist with basically no scrutiny. Ian, this is obviously, I mean, it's it's, it's worse for the people that are caught up in it. But as the world is reopening, air travel is going to come back. The economy is in desperate need of tourism. This seems like a very bad message for the UK to send to the rest of the world, right? That Don't come here. I want to, you know, it's really important for me. It's it's really hard at the moment when we talk about immigration because you don't want to get into a game where you start separating out immigrant groups. You know, that's mm-hmm. the last that's the last position you want to be in and talking about different treatment. But there there is um, a situation where there is, I feel, a moral obligation to European citizens in the UK that is very pronounced on the basis of the fact that they were told during the referendum nothing will change for you. They were told repeatedly by Michael Gove, by Boris Johnson, they're on the record, it's written down, they were fucking told that. Now, it turns out that that is not true. Now, some of it is because of specific government choices. One of those choices is to not give them documentation. The reality is, if, as many has just been explaining, you have an entire immigration system based around, show me your fucking papers, show me your papers for your job, show me your papers for your NHS treatment, show me your papers to rent this flat, and then you do not give people papers, they find themselves completely fucked. There's a, thousands of people in the backlog right now who are given this sort of certificate to show that they're in the backlog, who ostensibly can show this to, 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 to um, you know, an employer or, or to a landlord, Will the, will the employer fuck take this weird digital thing they've got to look up somewhere rather than just a British family? Just, just, you can go right in. So they won't. And the rest of it is just to do with the fact that the Home Office, and this cannot be said enough, it cannot be said loudly enough, it doesn't fucking work. 
It cannot run as an organization. The people within it, when you look at the border agents, they do not understand the rules that their own department has fucking passed. You have people on the rules. European citizens can come here if it's for less than six months to study. And yet you hear over and over again, when you talk to people in the three million, when you talk to people that work with European groups, people who are coming over to do courses that for less that period of time are turned away. One person I heard about from someone at three million from a friend of the show, Monique, saying that he was turned away two times before he was allowed in the third time, the guy from Spain. It just does doesn't fucking work and there is a moral obligation there that supersedes i think some of our other concerns around sort of tourism and, and travel and things like that ros how salient do you think immigration is at the moment as an issue we've talked about it kind of falling down the list since brexit and when you see things like happened in glasgow last month uh when protesters disrupted an immigration raid on two indian nationals is there enough sort of political capital in this for the government to, to go hard on it if there's public opposition, I mean, it, obviously that was a sort of isolated event. But if there is more kind of resistance to this, is it something that the government is going to has an incentive to double down on? I don't think there's a lot of public opposition at the moment. I think there's a different situation in Scotland because Scotland has a livelier media that is more critical of the Johnson government. And that is partly why that issue was able to gain traction. I think at the moment it's going to be very hard for stories, and there are many of them, as Trilling says in his piece, like Windrush. There are many Windrushes here. We just don't know about mm. them because they don't get publicised. To cut through, at the moment, the environment for that is very difficult because, partly because of the situation with what was called the Indian variant and is now being called the Delta variant. And I'm very glad it's been called the Delta variant because it being called the Indian variant basically meant that there was a feeling that, oh, Indian people brought it here, brought it in. It is from there. It is migrants or it is people who are first generation migrants or mm. second generation migrants who brought it here. And that was not not a healthy public discourse to have and not a healthy way to think about it. Because, you know, the way we think about it in this country, you know, we go on holiday uh, and that's fine. Uh, they bring in COVID. It's a complete double standard. And while we have this discourse that says, well, you really shouldn't travel. And if you do travel, a bit of holidaying is OK. But people who are just coming in from other countries for whatever reason, maybe to see their relatives, that's not OK. Then you have a country that compounded by Brexit is very suspicious of foreigners, that is increasingly xenophobic, that is obsessed with borders, which after all was a massive part of the Brexit discourse. It was take back control and that basically meant take back control of borders. So I hope that there will be more journalists like, you know, Amelia Gentleman at The Guardian who are ready and able and willing to expose what's going on with the and Daniel Trilling what's going on with the Home Office and the injustices that are being done. Until that happens, I'm not confident that there is enough public outrage. In The Guardian Long Read, did you see much difference between Labour and Tory Home Secretaries once they sort of got sucked into the vortex of the Home Office? Is there something about the department itself, which has all these inherent sort of, you know, weaknesses and biases? You know, because I just, I remember like affable... Beatles loving memoir writing, you know, your mate Alan Johnson, <laughs> yeah. not your mate when he was Home Secretary. <laughs> no, and I mean, it, it, it's true. And yeah, but it was basically as, as, as soon as someone got put in that role, I, when, when Labour was in power, David Blunkett, for example, was, I mean, they, they partly used this as a way to prove their own, to prove their own credentials as being tough on, on immigration. And that's been a recurring story with the Home Office. But yeah, I think there is a difference because when, the, when Trilling talks to former Home Secretaries and former Home Ministers, they basically say if they were Labour, well, I was really happy to end up there and I tried to do the best I could, but my <laughs> God, it was bloody depressing. <coughs> and I hated what a lot of the things I had to do. But you don't get that with the Tories. Now, Admittedly, Theresa May refused to speak to him for the article, so we don't know what her view was. But I'm fairly sure that she has a fairly positive view of what she did in her six years at the Home Office. And so certainly Pretty Patel in, in, has, has, has exploited it. As hard, uh, she doesn't look guilt haunted no. by guilt. No. no, but I mean, exactly. Please, but I'm, blinking, please save me. But this is the awful function of Home Secretaries, basically. They, they basically allow... The, uh, the whoever is prime minister at the time to do a 
hard cop routine and say, mm. yeah, yeah, I'm a nice guy, and, and but but you know, look who I've got in charge at the Home Office, so it's all fine. And that his tough guy routine is really bad, and I it's so it's so miserable that governments feel the need to do this. I think Johnson is actually doing the same thing because Johnson, in some ways, bizarrely, has quite liberal instincts. And having Patel and Raab and so on in positions, in high positions in the cabinet, means that he can always point to Mm. them and say, well, you know, I might be a liberal, but look who I've put there. We have to get out of this cycle of putting hard men and women into the job to prove something about what Britain's borders must be. Minnie, coming back to your Jenga analogy, it did make me think of a bit in the article where it seemed that there was this constant sort of bias towards escalating strictness because every time they made a mistake, they would institute, they would get tougher and they would institute something else that then sort of hung around. And at no point was there any incentive for the reverse to happen where they were like, oh, you know, we seem to be doing okay. Maybe we can relax some of these. Is that sort of the problem that it's kind of so scared of, I don't know, the um, probably the, largely the, the press, you know, that, that every mistake just... Um, makes them harsher and harsher. Yeah, I mean, when they have had huge mistakes pointed out to them, so for example, like Windrush, you know, Windrush kind of epitomised every single thing that is wrong with the Home Office, you know, from the policies to the culture within the department to the treatment of people who've been here since they were children to the treatment of people who've got criminal records. It kind of epitomised that. But then, you know, I kind of have no sympathy for the department, especially not Pretty Patel, who's currently running the department, because what the Tories did with that kind of inquiry and understanding of the scandal was play a whole kind of smoke and mirrors game where they basically said, oh, yeah, we understand what the root causes of this thing were. Oh, it was a big accident. We never meant it to happen, but we're absolutely not going to fix any of it. So, you know, political agenda is way more important on issues like migration Mm. for all kinds of home secretaries. And I think, you know, Labour definitely had a political agenda when they were in charge of the Home Office. And you can see that in kind of speeches that Tony Blair made on asylum reform way back when, I think it was probably a second election speech or something like that, where he it's literally interchangeable with the Tories. And the rationale behind that was to bring voters on board. You kind of, the political agenda to me seems to be the creation of someone that we can all turn against as a reason to kind of vote someone in. But is is that because, I suppose what I'm getting at is, is that because of the political incentives, certainly within the media? And the thing someone actually says, and we don't care if the Guardian's angry with this, but we do care if the Mail's angry with this. So that basically... All the kind of incentives, all, all the kind of, you know, momentum is always on the side towards more and more strict. And then they don't really care if sort of liberals are upset. Yeah, I don't think they do care, <laughs> I think is the honest answer, because I feel it's a, it's a really hard thing to get to the crux of, because I think that when you have people in communities, there's often a lot of community spirit. There's a lot of people who understand each other's relationships, understand each other's history. But then when you have a situation like austerity or when there are problems in services or that kind of thing, you need a common enemy. That's what the government kind of looks towards. They need someone to blame for their own kind of mistakes. And so they can turn that narrative around without needing to bring kind of liberals on board because a lot of the people are experiencing problems in their local communities and don't know how to resolve them. Ian, there was an interesting quote in the article, which we've now mentioned so many times that I think we deserve royalty points. Yeah, no, uh, uh, no one ever fucking plugs our articles like this. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Come on, The Guardian. Why aren't we? We should be really we'll having scr- panel sections we'll on our own writing. Back. I think that's the only way. To As it. Ian Dunt wrote. <laughs> that's okay. Very um, eloquently wrote. Yeah. <laughs> With devastating skill <laughs> and sincere emotion. Anyway, um, Jackie Smith, who was Home Secretary from 2007-2009, said immigration is a good thing for the country, but you can't sell that to the public. So therefore, what you have to do is convince people that you have control in order to have permission Mm. to have the type of relatively open approach to immigration. That's why we'd be super tough on deporting Mm. people. So 
What do you? How did that work out? Yeah. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, she really, she really boiled. She really lanced that. Po- she really boiled that lance. <laughs> Boy, that's that's really, exactly what she that says. It says yeah. eloquent Ian Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we quote Daniel Trilling instead. Um, yeah, but I mean, I suppose there is that, I mean, that. Is it that it's just really, really hard to sell the benefits of immigration, which we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast, and obviously you've been writing about um, that, that it's just you can't sell it to the public because of the press that we have? Or do you think that Labour doesn't try hard enough or hasn't found the right way to do it? Well, they just don't have the, the fucking the balls for it. You know, we have tried for for years, for decades now to do that exact Jackie Smith thing. Go, well, OK, fine. You know, we'll be very tough sounding, but, you know, in the background, we'll smuggle in, you know, some more liberal policies. But, you know, the, the only way to do that is to, is to show people they've got control. It doesn't fucking work. All you do is validate the arguments of people like Nigel Farage. And the window moves remorselessly in this UKIP direction until eventually you find yourself like like detonating your own trading network in order to create a kind of freedom that you never really needed in the fucking first place. You know, just if if we still need evidence that this approach to immigration doesn't work, then we will never be able to find it. What there is is an argument to be made about immigration, and it's hard in some places to do it. If you look at the polling, for some reason, fuck knows why. I don't know what plumbers did to people in this country, but there's nothing you can do to convince anyone in this country that they need more plumbers. However, on most other professions, actually, there is Space to convince people. I mean, what they, well, yeah, what they do is they go in some small market town, you know, at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, and they talk to someone who says, "Well, you know what? I fucking hate immigration." But and then you say, like, "Oh, that's it. The public hates immigrants, right?" We decided that. But in actual fact, when you ask people second and third and fourth questions about immigration, mm. you know, what you know, do you think that we need people coming in? What kind of people would you would you object to? Would you not? Do we think we have an obligation to help people fleeing war? You actually get a much more liberal response, and there is enough material there to work with if we have political parties who have just the fucking courage, just the backbone to actually make the argument instead of constantly fleeing away from it. In April 1999, a 22-year-old far-right extremist called David Copeland planted and detonated three nail bombs in three separate areas of London in the hope of igniting a race war. Brixton, Brick Lane and the Admiral Duncan pub on Old Compton Street. That third bomb killed three people. He is currently in prison until at least 2049. The crimes are covered in a new Netflix documentary, Nail Bomber Manhunt, which features community members caught up in the blasts, plus police and activists, including friend of the show Nick Lowell's from Hope Not Hate. It comes at a time when the threat of far-right violence has exceeded that of Islamist terrorism. At least 16 members of the armed forces have been referred to the Prevent Terrorism Prevention Programme, and a former Met officer was recently jailed for membership of the banned neo-Nazi group National Action. Ian, Nail Bomber makes 1999 seem like a very long time ago. What struck you about then and now, apart from the fact that somebody could make a living selling CDs <laughs> and cassette tapes? Yeah, there is. There's a long. It's important to note in this. There's a long section with these kind of dull boy guys beginning who just like sold a bit of blur, sold a bit of Oasis, got away with it. You know, like I totally want to watch a separate program yeah. about these two men. They were great. They were so good. <laughs> they really were fantastic. But did it seem like another, very much another era of the far right? I mean. To be honest, I didn't come away thinking that. I I came away thinking that the fundamental similarities, you know, where did he hit? He hits Brixton, hits Brick Lane, hits Old Compton Street. You know, there's one person in that in that program who says, you know, what they hate is difference. And it's, that sounds almost this sort of almost GCSE level. But actually, I think it's really useful to go to that GCSE level when we talk about the far right. And the reality is, and I don't want to labor this point, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, people on the hard right, the mainstream British politics are terrorists, they're not. But the same rhetoric is used, which is a, a hatred of difference. And that is core to a worldview, to a monocultural worldview that is shared much more broadly than just on the sort of violent far right, this with the proper, proper outright fascists, but really much more broadly across the spectrum into really quite mainstream, respectable publications and political movements. And so for that, I was I have to say I was mostly watching it because I remember that shit happening. You know, I remember that time really quite well. I was mostly thinking of the commonality in terms of what we face now rather than the, what distinguished it. from. What I, I suppose because this was just before John Tyndall was replaced by Nick Griffin as the leader of the BNP. Mm. And Tyndall was from a kind of, you know, he started off in the 50s and something called like, you know, the Empire League or something. <laughs> he was very much 
a different generation of racist. And of course, you know, you, it's a time before social media and international networks. And so you look at somebody like, you know, Tommy Robinson now, who's a much more sort of savvy player and sort of exploiting online culture and linking up with kind of people in America and so on. And that, I suppose, it seemed quite, uh, I mean, obviously, when it, when it comes to to terrorism, obviously extremely dangerous, but the network that he belonged to, the mail bomber, seemed much more parochial. There is a distinction as well that happened when I think a lot of far-right groups learnt how to speak in nativist terms rather than explicitly racist terms, which is really a lesson that they took predominantly from from sort of the right, the far right in France in the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, which is to drop, on the fascist side, to drop the totalitarianism, in fact, to almost fetishize democracy and the people, you know, the, the elections for the people, referendums for the people. Um, that was one thing, thing they gave up. And the other part that they gave up was explicit racism. Instead, they talked about a form of ethnicity where we were corrupted by virtue of not being surrounded by our cultural and ethnic group. So on the face of it, they said, for instance, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, any, any one group is more violent than another or less good at sports or less intelligent than another. It's just when they're outside of their cultural context, these are the things that happen. They become more likely to rape. They become more likely to commit crime. In actual fact, in reality, they never, ever spoke about any group being better than whites at anything. You know, the racism was always still there, but they learned how to, how to just erase the rougher edges of what they had to say enough to gain an entrance into mainstream debate. And I think when you look at that thing from 1999, these are not guys that have an entrance into the mainstream debate, whereas actually the generations after them did manage to get that foothold. I mean, Ross, this was thankfully quite a rare incident. This is it's almost the fifth anniversary of Joe Cox's murder. Again, a rare incident, one of very few political assassinations in the UK. Very rare coming, coming from the far right. But what struck me in the film is that there were warnings from groups like Searchlight who actually installed the, the informant inside the far right. We know the police at that time were infiltrating left-wing groups and having impregnating hunt sabotages and so on. Um, but obviously not paying attention here. And again, I definitely felt in, in 2016 that they, they, they didn't have a handle on the kind of forces that led to Joe Cox's murder. Do you think that they've got it now? To a certain extent, I, Joe Cox, I think, is a, is a very different. It's a very different era. It's a very different time. I think one of the very interesting things for me about the nail bomber was that the others in his group, you know, well, he wasn't in a group. I mean, there were other groups who claimed responsibility for what he'd done, but they were just opportunistic. He was acting alone. He downloaded his bomb manual from the internet. Now, this was in the early days of the internet when very few people actually used it. And you, you know, it, it just would have been very difficult to get hold of that kind of material. It's hard to imagine now, but it was until about that time, 1988, 1999. Joe Cox was... It was happened at such a febrile time. I mean, if you remember, it was a few days before the referendum, wasn't it? And everyone stopped campaigning for a while. And there was this kind of horror and outrage. And people on the left really hoped this would mark a turn against xenophobia. And, you know, clearly it didn't. Because as we've seen in the last five years, we've seen even more of it. And I think, unfortunately, that kind of appeal to people backfired. And I think people liable to vote Brexit actually resented the idea that that Joe Cox's murder could be associated with their side. They said, you know, this is a nutter. You know, you have to be a psychopath to kill someone and and, Mm. and blow them up. Don't don't. You know, it is insulting to us to associate the Brexit case with Joe Cox's murder. And to be fair, they had a point about that, because if the same had happened left and it was some, you know, far left terrorist, you know, the left would have done the same thing. I think we have to be really careful about investing violent acts with political significance just after they've happened. I think you need some time to work out what their significance is. It's actually, it's, it's, it's interesting, only in the last week or so, there's been an exhibition at the People's History Museum in Manchester, which is about Joe Cox that has just opened. And it feels like about the right time now to take a longer view on what it means. And of course, there's the whole charity, uh, the uh, group More in Common, which was set up by her widower, which has done some really good work on trying to work out, you know, like it says on the tin, what what more we have in in common. When I talked to them for the bunker a few weeks ago, it was very it was very interesting to hear what they had to say about people's views, and 
yeah, I think I think generally I was a bit worried at the time about the way the left were trying to interpret Joe Cox's murder. And I think I was right to be. It didn't, in the end, work in the favour of the left, as some hoped it would. But if I, I, I come back, I suppose, to where the police and the security services are, whether you feel that they have finally understood this threat. Because let's, okay, let's look at the timeline. This is 1999. So this is pre-9-11. Mm. Mm. Um, and around, the, you know, after the Good Friday Agreement, so there was a general sense, um, perhaps, that, that, that terrorism in general was not the sort of top priority. Then you've got 9-11 and you have a sort of long period where there is obviously obsession with terrorism from one particular direction. And there always seemed to be a reason why you weren't paying that much attention to the far hmm. right. Now we've seen, of course, that there are members of these prescribed groups in, certainly in the police and seemingly in the military as well. How confident are you that the police are, are monitoring the right people here? I'm not very confident because I think the networks these people have access to are far, far bigger than the ones that uh, the nail bomber had. Because it is so much easier now, not just to find a bomb manual, but to find on the internet the kind of views that will legitimise this kind of violence. There's just so many more channels of influence. We heard a lot in the documentary about how the uh, you know the the John Tyndall and the rhetoric of the far right and all this all this kind of stuff fed into and in, and led it obviously was a massive part of what he did, but the internet enables people to find endless justification for this kind of violence, and I find it hard to see that the police have the resources or perhaps even the will to delve into that and to find out exactly what's going on because it must be infinitely harder than it was in a pre-internet era. Minnie, in the film, locals in Brixton said they were underprotected and over-policed around the time of the bombing, which was uh, the same year as the McPherson report. There's an Asian newspaper editor talking about the Brick Lane bomb, saying we felt like they didn't give a fuck. Did it seem as much as a film about terrorism, about police failures? Yeah, I mean, some of that testimony was really powerful about how the community didn't feel like that the police had taken them seriously and actual allegations of violence from the police towards those communities too. And that's something that marginalised communities still say now. And, you know, that that was the essence of Black Lives Matter protests and the protests around the death of Sarah Everard. And I think... Since the McPherson report, which was at the same time, a lot of the findings around reform to policing structures have not been implemented. So when you put that context in, and when you also add in that, you know, that the same undercover informant from the documentary is warning that not enough is being done now to tackle the threat of the far right. What really struck home for me was that this isn't a static story about one man. It's actually a story about the state's kind of continual failure to protect marginalised communities and that a lot of the lessons from that time are very applicable now, um, particularly for policing. As Ian mentioned earlier, you know, you do see in the right wing press some of the same language as you get from from these people. Katie Hopkins notoriously got booted from the sun uh, for using sort of fascistic language about refugees. Uh, Melanie Phillips was mentioned in the manifesto of Anders Breivik. Now, I don't know what it's like. I've never been quoted in the manifesto (laughs) of a fascist mass murderer. But should journalists be, if this is a rising threat... Do you think that journalists sort of owe it to the public to be more careful about their about the the language they use, the tropes they use in the way, of course, we've been thankfully become a lot more sensitive to anti-Semitic tropes. And, and, you know, most people are are trying to avoid those. Do, Do you think the sort of language that was maybe that they could get away with when there was less of a sort of threat of real violence from the far right is you know, should just should not be let through by by sort of editors. No? Yeah, I mean, I don't like falling into the trap of kind of, of blaming the media for everything. And obviously, you know, you do have good journalists and bad journalists. But I think the media does have to think about accountability. And I think that that is something that is 
often left out of the conversation. You know, it's not just kind of Melanie Phillips and and Katie Hopkins. You know, uh, last year there was an attack on a a law centre where someone was harmed because of what had been printed repeatedly about Priti Patel and and her kind of statements about do-gooder lawyers. And that kind of narrative was included in that manifesto, which led to an attack on on a law centre. And I think what often happens in the media is that you get this kind of, oh, we need to have a two sides approach. We have to hear people both sides in a debate. And I often get asked to do interviews which are, are basically designed to turn into a screaming match. And the rationale behind that is, oh, it gets good ratings. It's interesting. It will boost our numbers. And on the other side, I'm kind of there thinking, you know, what happens when you walk off stage or put the phone down? You know, where's the accountability? Is it really necessary to hear the opinions and give a a platform to people with with a hate ridden message? And I think that is basically the essence of the culture war. And I think the media is, is really guilty of kind of perpetuating and giving a platform to voices where the message can be heard by people who will take that much further. So there has to be some kind of accountability in in how these decisions are made. That point you sometimes hear from producers of like, that was good radio. Mm. It's like one of the most fucking pernicious, toxic things. Because whenever they say, they never say that about two people having a really constructive dialogue where they learn from each other and you inform the audience. They always just this say... This isn't good radio. Is that, yeah, this is terrible fucking radio right now. You know, because what they mean is just two bile-filled, screaming lunatics just, just going at one another. And like, that's, it, that's bad on its own front because it's so... There's no, it's just that there's no nutrition in it for anyone listening, but it's also very negative because what you end up incentivizing are just these really quite extreme voices. I don't know if I could, I had BBC Radio Scotland the other day on whether you should go on holiday. And, and they're like, oh, there'll be someone against you. And so, like, oh, cool, man, just put on whatever because you think it's a fucking respectable program, right? They're not going to bring on a lunatic. <laughs> That's incorrect because they will. And they had this guy who I think was like from the Daily Record or some shit. He was fucking like blistered with hatred towards me. I've no idea who the fuck he is. And he just starts saying, goes, you fucking hate your country. If you like, you're a And you just think, this is funny, right? If you just have, if you're listening to things that is saying that these people hate their country day after day mm-hmm. after day on anything, what it, does that narrow the point where you might actually go out and try and kill someone or try and beat someone up or smash some windows? And it does feel like there has to be some form of culpability there. And that culpability lies as well with mainstream as much as it does, you know, with, with more right wing sort of tap. I am often astonished by, by what gets through. And I'm, I'm, I'm angry with the editors because I do think that certain columnists are going to push it. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder that when you receive a piece, you know, I send in pieces sometimes and someone goes, oh, I'm not sure about this intro. Yeah. But they're wrong. The intro is great. <laughs> but... <laughs> You, you see certain stuff on the page and you're just like, did nobody just go, you know, it's like Rod Little or whoever it might mm-hmm. be. We just, could you want to drop this line, rephrase mm-hmm. it? There just seems to be a kind of like, well, they're going to say what they say. Or it's old-fashioned Fleet Street. What are you going to do? They're characters. Or worse, which is that they, they saw it, they knew what it would do, they knew what it meant, and they fucking put it through anyway because they know that it creates that kind of conversation mm. around it, that anger, that vitriol. That it means to get shit. Yeah, I think that's the crux of it. You know, it's designed for shock value. It's designed to kind of perpetuate and feed that culture war because it it brings in viewers and ratings and conversation on Twitter. It's, you know, so often you see people tweeting things or saying things from from kind of right or even far right leanings, which are designed to get their message shared. You know, that's the individual doing it themselves. But then when the media kind of steps in and then says, okay, let's give you a platform to talk about this horrible thing that you've just tweeted or shared or whatever that's Mm. where accountability is really important because why should that person have a larger platform to say something which might cause harm to someone else well hang around for the patreon extra bit where we'll be talking uh, more about how the internet has ruined everything (laughs) (laughs) Um, i thought you're going to be like well we've invited on rod little (laughs) to debate with toby young it is it is true though because it you know I, i i worked on a comment desk you get you get uh, assessed by how many page views there are, and you say, "Oh, well, this got this got X million views." Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen when you're editing a paper because mm-hmm. you don't know how many people have actually read the piece. 
uh, and it's there on its own merits. It's not there to push page views, mm-hmm. and that's the metric that is used, and that's why it's become so toxic, a combination of the desire for page views and the desire for self-promotion and exposure that comes from retweeting and, you know, the stuff on Twitter. Those two, in combination, are what has driven this to such a toxic situation, as you were saying, Minnie. Well, now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week we pick a prize fighter and a prize donkey from the world of politics. Uh, Minnie, what are your choices this week? I was going to say Tories as a joke, but I'm definitely not doing Tories. <laughs> <laughs> they are underrated. I think. Yeah. Um, my overrated, underrated. I, well, I think that a lot of people are probably thinking about their summer holidays now, especially that we've got good weather. So my overrated this week is beaches abroad and my underrated is UK beaches. I think it just does not seem in any way worth it at this point in time to be spending loads of money on an unpredictable beach holiday abroad which is probably full of British tourists anyway and overpriced cocktails, especially not when we've got such amazing British beaches which I just don't think they get enough credit for. You know, we've got such a huge variety there is literally something for everyone. I mean, I even recently went to Skegness, which I know you're going to have to hear me out. I know it's not thought of as a beautiful beach, but I had so much fun there. And I think that 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 kind of really made me go, this is hugely underrated. I hope that anyway, a summer of kind of staycations gets us all thinking about supporting British beaches and, and investment and how we can support local communities there too. I've, I've never disagreed with you more on any <laughs> subject. I have to, I have to but, say, I mean, give me a foreign beach any day. Any day. Uh, but any I'm, I'm, I'm very keen on British countryside. I love that and the mountains and the hills and whatever. But but beaches, <laughs> it's just no. Oh, you're really saying that you would choose Marbella over Skegness? I just don't believe you. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't enough. actually want either, but I would definitely choose a Greek island or a French beach over um, <laughs> And thanks to the Skegness Tourist Board for sponsoring that segment. <laughs> <laughs> reach the end of the show which means it's time to answer a question from our universe of listeners in but your emails this week it's lj who asks please can you talk me through why hs2 is a good idea all i hear from my green friends is it's a total disaster destroying ancient woodland and similar apart from a mate i like who's working on it at the moment (laughs) 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 um presumably quite pro i'm on their side what makes it something other than a destructive vanity project well, Roz, are you get the HS2 defender has logged on. Yeah, I like HS2, but I, I like trains, as regular listeners will know. I think HS2 is a good project. I understand that a few, uh, some, some uh, more than a few uh, woods are going to be destroyed. That is a great pity. However, I would urge people to think about the new roads that are constantly being built. I would urge them to think about whether the route that we currently have out of Euston and King's Cross to the the north is enough. Frankly, it isn't. It's overcrowded. You, we want to put more freight on those and uh, get people there quicker. It's good. It's good thing for the country to sit for cities to be joined up. It's a good thing for Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds to be closer than they are at the moment. It will help them. It will make us less London centric in the way we think about things, and it will be fundamentally a good thing for Britain. And because we are too obsessed with London and we uh, spend too much time thinking about how to improve London at the expense of the rest of the country. And, you know, to his small credit, Boris Johnson has realised that. So I think, yes, it is a big rail project. Yes, inevitably, there is some habitat destruction in there. They are, though, the making efforts to compensate for that by planting new ones. You can never do that entirely. But HS2 is a investment in public transport and if you believe in the environment and you're a green campaigner that is fundamentally a good thing because it means people are not in cars polluting and congesting the work uh, congesting the roads i mean my oh god whenever anyone says my understanding is what they really mean is i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about this might be true and that is basically true with what i'm about to say but when this was explained to me it was that it's not just about the cities it's that 
At the moment, we use the fast... Roger, you're going to have to correct me here if I'm wrong, and if not, I'm sure someone's going to write in and tell me that I'm getting all this wrong. But the way it was explained to me was that at the moment, we use fast trains and slow town-to-town commuter trains on the same line. Yeah. And that that means you've got to have a longer distance between them. That makes it much harder to make those downtown commuter trains work well. So this is not just about cities. If you take those fast trains off and put them on a different line, you can equalise the time between trains for the commuter trains, for the small town-to-town ones, that therefore you improve that kind of fluid transport non-road using transport for for people in towns as well as cities it just seems to me to be a very sensible idea even though it's anti-london centric so it's like you're very conflicted i am i make great sacrifices because you want everything to be about london but also you like hs2 i think everyone else should have great transport too just just you know maybe if they'll get it then they'll stop fucking acting like we're to blame for everything well that's what convinced me was that that i think a lot of people don't understand they just think oh well it's just getting to you know, Birmingham quick or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is freeing up all that, you know, those other lines. Minnie, you, you used to work for the Greens. Are you the dissenter on this? <laughs> Probably. What's your, what's bit, your I mean, I'm not by any means an expert on HS2. I think where I kind of fall on it is like, yeah, of course there needs to be better transport. Of course there needs to be better infrastructure. And if you're talking about kind of regional transport to London, you also need to think about what transport infrastructure looks like in those places. And Birmingham, as an example, has horrendous transport infrastructure that isn't going to be fixed by a super fast train. Like people being able to get to the train station also has huge problems in the city centre. So you need to think about that. And then, of course, I think it's just a mismatched environmental strategy. And there are other things that need to occur that should be a priority that would fix or help, you know, tackling climate change. And I think the priority being on HS2 without any of the other infrastructure around it and without any other efforts to tackle climate change kind of just means it's at a bit of an odds and, and is something that's open for a lot of criticism. Cool. That's exactly the kind of question uh, that we welcome. Uh, so thanks, <laughs> LJ. But like very specific issue rather than just like how can you fix this broken shithole of a country. Um, you know, which... By the way, when he said that, he didn't mean questions on transport infrastructure because, <laughs> no. frankly, we are, we are digging in the depths of our knowledge on this subject right now. But, like, a specific subject which we can bask. <laughs> I, no. I am always happy to answer questions about trains. Trans- it is my specialist sub- uh, subject on Mastermind. Uh, I have a particular interest in them. So please, Ian, do not speak for I me when not, it comes to it back. trains. I take it back. I, I actually back. wrote an article this week about public transport. As I established recently, uh, like Andy Burnham, I'm all about the buses. <laughs> have, you read, have you read the new uh, report, Bus Back Better? I have. <laughs> It has an introduction. It has an introduction by Boris Johnson in which he explains that, you know, people thought that people claimed he was lying when he said that he loved buses so much he built models of them. But this is not true. And he is proud to have brought the new route master to London roads, etc. Which, you know, as anybody who knows about any of the history of the, of the Boris bus would, would possibly demure. But never mind. Yeah. Bus back better. Amazing. <laughs> and that's the show. My thanks to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Ian. Thank you. And Roz. Thank you. In this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, we were discussing a new study that suggests those who are most confident about spotting fake news are actually more likely to fall victim to it. Back us for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode. You'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and thanks from me to Jay Anderson, Louisa Llewellyn, Jan Godfrey, Shelley Tyso and Andrew Dawson. Hello and best wishes from me to Sarah Stock, Nicola Mine, Omerly, Gerish Janerja and Killian Fornan. And many thanks from me to Caroline Casey, Andrea Leiper, Carlos Grande, <laughs> that's an amazing name, Ian Wilkinson, Helen Corbett. And thanks from me to Paul McManaman, Ruth, Joanna Kunzberg, Contact Music and Patrick Diamond. Take care and see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Minnie Rahman, Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the exclusive Sky Pool that is the Oh God What Now extra bit. 
This week, if you think you can spot fake news, are you more likely to be suckered by it and then to spread it? A University of Utah study around the 2018 US midterms suggests that people who are most confident of their ability to spot false or partisan news, particularly men, were, quote, less able to distinguish between true and false claims about current events and reported higher willingness to share false content, especially when it aligned with their political predispositions. Nine out of ten people thought they were above average in their ability to spot fake news. <laughs> not how averages work, guys. It's like thinking that you, you know, it's like thinking you have good music. I have above average music taste. <laughs> I was like, well, half of you don't. Um, so let us begin with Roz. What is the most fake thing that you have fallen for? You're not going to believe this, but I don't actually think I've I've fallen for some fake news. Partly because you know I am my antennae is very good. I I know that you know clearly I'm I'm going to be wrong about that. But I did work for an LSE commission on misinformation, so I do I do try really really hard not to uh, fall for it. I did once do something incredibly stupid, which was a uh, fall for a phishing email. Basically, it reported to come from an uh, elderly lady who's a friend of mine in France, and it said, "You, I'm in hospital, and uh, I I need your help." And I was like, "Oh no, schmuck." She's she's in hospital. Oh God, Suzanne's in hospital. What can I do? And I emailed back and and, and uh, in my best French and and uh, asked what I could do. And and we went back and forth. And then she started asking me for money, and it took me so long to realise that she was <laughs> this was an imposter. It was it was embarrassing. I mean, okay, it was in French, but so maybe my antennae were not so good. But it was still just I felt I felt embarrassed and ashamed. I can't help but feel this is like a humble brag. <laughs> The only time I've ever been tricked, it was in French. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's right. Detect le bullshit. La merde. Uh, Minnie, have you ever um, contributed to retweeting some absolute nonsense? Yeah, I mean, I find this really funny because I definitely consider myself, and I think my friends and family consider me like the fact checker. So they're always asking me like, is this real? Is that not real? So I find it quite amusing that I'm probably in that category of people who thinks they're great and never get caught out. And I definitely do. The thing that I get caught out by so often is like fake screenshots or like, um, yeah, where Mm, people have mm. edited like headline titles or things that other people say. So I can't like think of a very famous example, but the, the one that got me quite recently was... I don't know if you guys saw, there was like a racist attack in Birmingham. There was like a young white woman who assaulted a black security guard, which was real. But someone Mm. created like a fake Instagram profile for her and did a fake apology from her, which was obviously like a very bad, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, I don't care about black people apology. And I 100% believe that it was real. And I was kind of like sharing it with my friends, like, oh my God, this is horrible and horrendous. And actually, it wasn't her profile. She hadn't said that. I don't know if she'd actually said anything. But Luckily, I wasn't the only one who got caught out by that because I think it was actually reported like in the media that she'd done a very shit apology. But yeah, the screenshots thing gets me all the time. And that was a trailer for the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.